the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. As a constitutional law attorney, former senior legal advisor and personal counsel to President Donald J. Trump, Jenna Ellis believes in the rule of law and the importance of integrity in our elections. And she's ready to tackle the big cultural and legal issues facing America. This is The Jenna Ellis Show. Here is your host, Jenna Ellis. Welcome, friends, to another episode of The Jenna Ellis Show. I am Jenna Ellis, and lots to talk about today. And before we get to the top headlines of the day and all of the uh, great things we talk about on this program, I also want to talk about my friends at Legacy Precious Metals. Uh, Legacy Precious Metals is a company that you can trust to give you good and patient counsel for your personal situation, for your uh, protecting your finances and retirement. When times are turbulent, you need an asset that protects you, and that's why I believe in investing in gold and trust my friends at Legacy Precious Metals. Call them today at 866-528-1903. That's 866-528-1903. Or you can visit them online at LegacyPMInvestments.com and download their free investor's guide. All right. So today, of course, is the big day in Virginia. This is uh, Election Day obviously across the country, but all eyes are on Virginia and the gubernatorial race. And I think it's really interesting to see how uh, Terry McAuliffe, who just made those absurd comments um, and absolutely egotistical elitist comments saying that parents don't have a right to direct their uh, their children's education or participate in curriculum choice and It's just absolutely absurd. But this is how the left sees the role of government. They don't see it as individual rights and that they are supposed to and are actually obligated to protect parental rights. They see it as the elitists get to decide for you and, of course, um, by extension, your children, what they need to be taught. And you don't get a say in it. Because ultimately, children belong to the government. And the fullest extension of that proposition, of course, um, has been in the United Kingdom and elsewhere uh, and other countries that have signed on to the UN Convention on Rights of the Child. The United States still has not. And it is a very dangerous thing when we manipulate words and phrases out of their actual meaning because a lot of the leftists have said, you know, why aren't we standing as the United States for children's rights? Well, what they mean by that in context in the UN Convention on Rights of the Child actually means that the government gets to decide for your children what is in their best interest or what the government believes and arbitrates unilaterally is in their best interest versus what the parents actually think and how they control the health, safety, and welfare and decision-making of their children when it comes to things like healthcare decision-making, when it comes to things like education, like school choice, uh, like bringing them up in a certain uh, faith-based community. All of these things uh, we know that our government recognizes 
that God has given each of us individual rights, and among those are parental rights. God gives children to parents, whether it's biologically, whether it's through adoption, whether it's uh, custody of children. The care, custody, and control of children is up to the parents, and the government can and should only step in when there is a clear line of abuse by parents, which unfortunately does happen, but that's always contrasted against parental rights. And so what the government may say is, quote unquote, abusive to children, right? That has to be an objective definition of harm. And we've seen that be so manipulated. And so what the UN Convention um, on Rights of the Child, if you haven't heard about this, um, it's actually a really big deal. Because um, if you remember a couple of years ago with the two young uh, children who were in the UK, um, Charlie Gard and Alfie Evans, uh, were the two kids that gained worldwide prominence because um, under the healthcare system in the United Kingdom, um, each of those children was not given a high enough percentage of likelihood of survival. And so the government decided over and above the parents' wishes to uh, to basically say you can't go anywhere else and get treatment. And because healthcare uh, is scarce, uh, that's a principle of scarcity among, um, you know, in, in economic terms, then uh, the then the panel, this is what you know Sarah Palin kind of famously called death panels, but the uh, but doctors were saying there's not a high enough success rate to use some of our scarce and limited resources on these babies who don't have a high enough uh, chance of, of survival. And obviously in a capitalist society and also frankly just a moral society, parents are going to want to do absolutely everything that they can for their individual child because it is their child. The government will never care about your child as much as you as a parent will care about your child. And so these parents wanted to bring uh, the children to the United States. Uh, President Trump even offered, I, I believe it was in the case of Alfie Evans, I might have to go back and look, but he even offered, say, you know, come and we will treat them here. I mean, he's a father, he gets it. And yet, uh, the United Kingdom said, no, you can't do that. And it was a patently absurd, immoral decision. But because of the way that the law is, and particularly with this, uh, with signing on to the UN Convention on Rights of the Child, it basically says that the government can step in over and above the parents' wishes and determine what's in the best interest of the children instead of the parents. And that mentality is what we're seeing in the leftist uh, mentality here in America. And that's what we have to guard against. That's why, rightly so, uh, Terry McAuliffe has absolutely tanked in the polls and why so many Virginians um, today and through this past couple of weeks have been out supporting Glenn Youngkin. I think they're going to go to the polls and they're going to vote, um, not just monolithically. This isn't a single issue campaign. But that particular issue of parental rights highlights exactly why Americans are pushing back against an overreaching federal and local government. And Terry McAuliffe deserves to lose monolithically, if nothing else, on that issue. Absolutely deserves to lose. Because once we say 
that parental rights don't matter and that the government can decide what's in the best interests of your children over and above parents, that is an egregious, egregious overreach. And it's completely contravening anything that the U.S. Constitution stands for, that our system of government stands for, that uh, our objective morality in society stands for. Parental rights is at the foundation of everything that we do. And a lot of libertarians, for example, and I'm not you know, bashing libertarians here, but a lot of libertarians tend to, more than conservatives, focus just on individual rights. And a lot of college students, for example, who are away from their parents, don't yet have a family themselves, uh, they're very, very single. And so they make decisions just for themselves and the individual. And the danger of that is not seeing the whole picture of what, yes, individual rights are for, but also the rights of the family, uh, particularly including parental rights. And so that's why you're seeing people like Matt Walsh, who I uh, fully laud and appreciate from Daily Wire, who has been at these um, school board meetings, just saying, you know, of course, parents have a right and responsibility to be invested in and participate in their children's education. And this is why school choice is a, such a big deal, why homeschooling absolutely is part of the fundamental right of parents. It's not just uh, that it's legal. It's that it, school choice as an option is is fundamentally given to parents that the government cannot coerce and control. And if a parent wants to use government funding, for example, and this is a case that's actually in front of the U.S. Supreme Court. And when that is argued, um, it's coming up later this month. And we'll be talking on this show about those oral arguments. Obviously, I'll listen to it. I'll break it all down for you. But that case um, is a big religious liberty case, but it's not just religious liberty. That particular case is talking about how uh, if the the state uh, is giving um, funding to parents, and then parents go and use that funding for school choice to put their children in a faith-based education school, then uh, the argument, of course, from the left is that parents can't do that because then the state is funding religion and that goes against the Establishment Clause. That's ridiculous. And this is religious liberty in the sense that parents get to choose that. But I think even more foundationally, that case is and should be about parental rights because parents have the exclusive authority obligation and responsibility for the care, training, and custody of their children as well. And that is, in several Supreme Court cases, has been affirmed. Uh, Pierce and Yoder, um, if you want to look up both of those two cases, um, those are kind of the seminal uh, opinions from the Supreme Court that recognize that parental rights are foundational. And so when we then look at a very specific instance like today in Virginia, and we look at uh, Glenn Youngkin versus Terry McAuliffe. And the reason that this particular issue of education, I think, highlights everything about why Terry McAuliffe deserves to lose, it's because parental rights and the traditional family is at the heart of everything that our founders understood. It's not just about my individual rights. It's also about the family's parental rights uh, for their children. And we're seeing that being terribly obfuscated by the leftists. And once you say that parents 
can't participate in the curriculum of children. They can't choose for their children um, healthcare decision making. That gets into whether or not the government can coerce um, minors to receive a COVID vaccine, for example, against the wishes of their parents. I mean, wouldn't that be an awful, terrible thing? But that's the uh, the end point of this worldview. And so when we're looking at policy, policy always has a worldview behind it and it always has an orientation of the purpose of government behind it. It's not just in a vacuum that Terry McAuliffe just made a misstatement and offended parents. This is about a fundamental worldview on what rights uh, he thinks, and the leftists at, and the Democrats think categorically are unalienable and are given by God instead of government. So this is a day of reckoning, not just in Virginia, but I think in a clash between the fundamental worldview philosophy of government between the left and the right. And the left continues to try to say that the government should be making these decisions for you as individuals. And they have now extended this into curriculum, into healthcare decision-making, um, into a lot of absurd uh, ways they're intruding on fundamental parental rights. And so I hope that everyone in Virginia listening to this get out to the polls today, absolutely, and vote. But for everyone across the country, you need to be showing up and voting. And that gets into a second element that a lot of you have asked me, well, what about election integrity issues? What about Virginia? And there's been a ton of stuff on Twitter today that, you know, people are kind of snarking saying, you know, are we going to um, see the poll workers uh, pause and at, you know, three in the morning and and uh, then suddenly uh, McAuliffe will win and, you know, some of these things that are mirroring um, instances of the 2020 election. Well, a couple of things on this, and I continue to of course, uh, champion election integrity efforts. Um, I'm the chairwoman of the the National Election Integrity Alliance. Um, you know, working with uh, legislators across the 50 states to pass common sense uh, legislative measures to continue to conduct these audits uh, to determine what things need to be remedied. You know, we're almost a year. Tomorrow will be one year since the 2020 election. And taking stock of what happened and now where we've come in a year, um, I think we, we can and need to do more, definitely before 2022. But what's really important about today is to make sure that you get out and vote, because as a fundamental starting place, and I was very happy to see President Trump um, put out a statement last week that solidified what I knew he was saying. A lot of people kind of took it out of context, saying he was encouraging people not to show up. I think he was just, um, and he said this in his statement, and I actually said this before. He clarified just because I know him really well and how how he speaks, and you know, he's um, not only a uh, I formerly worked for him, but obviously I still champion him, um, advise, and he's a very dear friend, um, and I support everything that America First is all about. But he said in his uh, in his statement, his clarification, that people are going to be discouraged, Republicans will be discouraged if uh, there isn't election integrity that is is built into the system, and we're going to be discouraged going out and voting. Totally true. Uh, and that was his first statement. What he clarified was to say he's not discouraging people from going out and voting. That's just the practical reality. And I know that a lot of people are really frustrated. I'm still frustrated about election integrity stuff. But the fundamental 
threshold issue is we still have to go out and vote because if we don't vote, then we're just handing it to the Democrats and we're staying at home pouting and just playing in to everything that they want. And so if we don't even show up on election day, we're not even preserving the ability to object if they try to uh, lie, cheat, and steal. So we have to go to the polls. We have to make sure that we show up. We have to make sure that we are handing in our ballot to a polling location. If you're in a state like mine, I still am a resident and vote in Colorado. Um, and that has been a universal vote by mail state since 2012. So, you know, we always get our ballots mailed to us. That's been a system that I don't prefer. And I think that should be rescinded. But you know, that's still a controversy in Colorado. So I fill out my ballot, actually go and drop it off. And that's how I've done that uh, is since 2012. So we have to show up. But we also have to look at not just election integrity issues from uh, the day of counting. I think there's going to be really intense scrutiny today on the governor's race because people are so highly attenuated to this issue. Um, they are so in tune with making sure that there is not any sort of fraud that happens. Um, so that's going to be very intense scrutiny on and poll watchers uh, that are showing up. Um, I think, and you all know that, uh, I think that the, the RNC and the GOP didn't do um, nearly enough to fight uh, for common sense um, election integrity measures uh, well prior to the election. I think that they're uh, worthless completely. But um, the, the thing that we have to do in all of these states, including Virginia, my good friend Tom Fitton from Judicial Watch just uh, tweeted and, and posted, and you all should follow him, uh, Tom Fitton, on all social media. But um, he reminded people today that um, Virginia – took away the voter ID requirement. So if you show up at the polls and you want to vote, they will request an ID. But if you say, oh, I don't have it, you can just sign an affidavit that says, yeah, I am who I say I am. And where does that go? Is that ever actually compared and contrasted? Those types of lack of election security measures are things that the legislatures of these states could easily remedy. And that more than anything would be helpful as a fundamental threshold for election integrity. So will there be a fair election today in Virginia? I hope so. And I think we all who are in Virginia, um, who are registered, should get out and vote. And you know, by we, I mean you guys, because um, obviously I'm, I'm not registered in Virginia. I'm currently in Virginia uh, today for work. But, um, but, but get out and vote and make sure that you are overwhelming the polls because you care. And then we still need to make sure that the legislatures of these states are making sure that they are cleaning up their voting rolls, that the, that the secretaries of states um, aren't just ignoring the law They're, and the administration of the election, that poll workers, um, poll watchers are allowed to watch and that they're, they're actually meaning, getting meaningful access to the polls. So we'll see how today goes. Um, I am more confident. I spoke with Jim Jordan uh, last week, you all should listen to that uh, episode if you haven't already. It was a great episode. Um, I love Jim Jordan. I think he's doing a great job in Washington. And he echoed what I'm saying today as well, that I think that there will be more intense scrutiny on this election, uh, particularly in Virginia, 
than we've seen uh, in t- just because of what happened in 2020. So let's all pray, let's all vote, and let's all make sure that we are participating in our civil government and we're voting in the right ways and we are showing the Democrats your worldview and orientation to government is absolutely contrary and antithetical to what our founders designed our government to do and to be, which is to preserve and protect our fundamental unalienable rights. And that absolutely has to include as as a fundamental issue parental rights. All right. So second uh, item of the day, of course, uh, we're going to talk about the Kyle Rittenhouse case. And before we do, I want to talk about my good friend, Mike Lindell. Uh, Of course, you have all helped build MyPillow into the amazing company that it is today. Mike has an amazing offer for my listeners on his standard MyPillows. You can receive a standard MyPillow regularly $69.98, now only $19.98. I have a MyPillow. I love it. Uh, And I have a My Robe. I have My Slippers. They're just amazing. So you can receive deep discounts on all MyPillow products. Christmas is coming up. I personally do all my Christmas shopping well before December. Then I can just enjoy the holiday season. So for me, yesterday was my birthday. So that is the official start of the entire holiday season, which includes my birthday, Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's, you know, all the holidays. So definitely now is the time to shop, get deep discounts. Go to MyPillow.com, click on the radio listener square to receive Mike's standard MyPillow for just $19.98, or you can call 1-800-564-8475. But make sure you remember to use the promo code Jenna. That's how you'll receive your discount. That's promo code J-E-N-N-A. All right, so the Kyle Rittenhouse trial. Uh, This, of course, started yesterday, and uh, this is a fascinating study on society and culture. By the way, all of these cases that in these trials that tend to be very prominently in the media and very intensely scrutinized um, and by the media and also uh, by the you know the average person who really is interested in these cases, they tend to be so much larger of the cultural question than just uh, the actual merit of what's being tried in court. So as as most of you know, um, I started out as a prosecutor in Colorado in my my legal career, and then um, I went and 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 became a criminal defense attorney. And actually, I've practiced um, you know for a number of years uh, in Colorado as a criminal defense attorney. Um, tried you know, had tons of cases, uh, in court, tons of trials. And, um, I defended misdemeanors all the way up to felonies, um, including, you know, murder trials. So this is something that, you know, I've been in court and I've been on both sides of the table. And you wouldn't know that by the way, uh, talking to wall street journal or the mainstream media, which totally cracks me up, but, um, you know, that's them. They always try to undermine, uh, anyone's credibility or life experience or professional experience, uh, when they don't prefer, uh, the person that they're talking about. And that always makes me laugh. Um, but criminal defense is a really interesting issue because uh, so many people, especially conservatives, tend to view criminal defense as, oh, you're just trying to get this, you know, this person off for what they clearly did or, you know, how could you represent, um, you know, these types of people? I would get that all the time. Like, you know, how can you represent somebody who's been accused, for example, of sexual assault or of, you know, all kinds of things that are 
the the crime itself, not just what this person allegedly did, but the crime itself is obviously one of moral turpitude. It's one that nobody in society should value or think is okay. That's why we criminalize certain things, but the certain acts. And the moral compass of a given society is all about what you what you prohibit and what you allow. And so we can't escape the fact that law is inherently moral. And if we are saying as a society that we are criminalizing certain conduct, we are saying it is morally reprehensible, it is morally wrong, and it's inherently evil. It's it's an evil thing to go out and commit a rape. We should all be able to agree with that. What the criminal defense element is for in our adversarial system, being in court, you have adversaries, you have the prosecution and you have the defense, is to say that that clash is very important so that the state, the government, who is the prosecutor, the the government is the only one that can bring criminal charges in a court of law, so that the government doesn't railroad someone uh, into a plea or a verdict of guilty when they can't, uh, the state cannot prove each and every element of the defense. So due process and the whole reason that we have uh, the right to have an attorney, that we have um, you know, the Miranda warning, that we have uh, the, the fourth, fifth, sixth amendments, um, so many of our, and actually more than anything, our Bill of Rights is protecting individuals against an overreaching government in the context of a criminal proceeding. That is very important because that should tell us something about how the founders knew that government can be overreaching and infringe upon our individual rights. Uh, in It's in the context of criminal defense. And so when we look at someone uh, very specifically, I mean, that's kind of the broad context, right, is to make sure that the government can prove its case beyond a reasonable doubt. That's the highest standard of proof in the law. Um, you know, we can we could talk for an entire semester and guess what? Um, <laughs> we, we actually do that in, in law schools and um, in, you know, in other uh, lesser classes in undergrad. Uh, we talk about all of these principles of criminal law and the philosophy behind it. And it's actually a fascinating study. But that's more the philosophy. When you get to one specific instance, like a Kyle Rittenhouse, all of that philosophy then has to be applied in that particular situation. But what is often missed in even things like, you know, the, the George Floyd uh, case with Derek Chauvin, with, um, you know, so many of these cases that are very, very politically driven, culturally motivated – People tend to look at and presume guilt or innocence based on the cultural, political issue at play in the circumstance of those cases. And what's really unfortunate for people like Chauvin and Rittenhouse who are on trial um, with very, very serious felonies uh, that are on the line is that it's very difficult often for the defense to go into what is a very sterile environment of a courtroom and very politically and emotionally charged uh, for the jury. I mean, juries are comprised of average fellow citizens who, of course, bring their own life experience, their own political background, their biases uh, into the courtroom. 
And that's not necessarily a bad thing um, at all. In fact, that's the intention of, of a jury is to bring your life experience. But they have to be willing when they are sworn in and sit as a jury to set aside bias in that particular instance and say that they will review only the evidence that is shown to them at trial. And the question is always whether or not the prosecution can prove each and every element of the offense beyond a reasonable doubt. And that has been largely almost entirely missed in the coverage of Rittenhouse. And as I set up this this topic, uh, probably a lot of you were expecting me to, you know, go into kind of the political analysis of, you know, he's there in um, in Kenosha and, you know, this is during the whole BLM riots and, um, you know, here's all of these things. That's important to talk about. And certainly we all have and continue to have um, political and moral opinions on um, the BLM riots and the entire circumstances of what was happening in culture um, during the 2020 riots. But more than that, uh, just when we're talking about the Rittenhouse trial, we have to be very careful as conservatives to not get caught up in the emotion or the political attenuation in so far as we are looking at the actual guilt or not guilty of the person standing trial. And that, the only way to answer that is whether or not the prosecution fulfills each and every element of the offense that's charged beyond a reasonable doubt. And Kyle Rittenhouse is charged with actually five felonies. Um, The highest, of course, is um, intentional homicide, um, which in looking at the statute, um, you know, I'm I'm not a Wisconsin lawyer, but um, in looking at that, it carries uh, life imprisonment. That's a huge, huge thing for an 18-year-old. He was 17 at the time. He's looking at life in prison um, or any of these other lesser included offenses. Um, so it, it could be a split verdict where he's found guilty on uh, – there are a couple of misdemeanors that are charged, five felonies – Uh, They can say guilty or not guilty to any or all of each of the offenses that are charged. So it's a big deal to Kyle Rittenhouse. And every single defendant that stands trial deserves due process no matter what they are accused of. Uh, They deserve to have a fair jury um, that will set aside the political motivations of the day that will ignore the mainstream media about it and... Uh, will not look at whether or not they agree with one political side over another. Because if we see how the media is treating Rittenhouse, um, if you're a conservative or on the right, generally speaking, everyone it thinks that Rittenhouse is being railroaded. He should have never been arrested in the first place. And of course, the Democrats think that he's this you know wild, unruly teenager that had no business being there and Um, had no justification whatsoever and should probably rot in prison, right? And those two things, and I'm not saying, of course, yet which side I agree or disagree with. My point in talking about this as a threshold beginning of trial issue is that we always as conservatives should approach these cases, and it's really difficult to do this, I, I recognize, but we need to approach it with the mindset, what do the facts actually show? What has the prosecution charged and giving a full, robust due process 
to Rittenhouse. Now, none of us who are listening to this um, are sitting on Rittenhouse's jury, so we don't have to do that. We can have whatever political opinion we want. That's totally fine. But at the same time, we need to recognize that half the people, roughly, you know, half the people will get a Kyle Rittenhouse verdict that they prefer, and half the people won't. That's what happened in the Chauvin uh, verdict. And then what happens after that, when people say, oh, justice wasn't served, or, you know, oh, this was, has been railroading, they're going based on their political motivation and their political opinions, instead of recognizing that as long as they're was a fair trial and all of the due process elements were there, then whatever the verdict is, then that is the administration of justice under our system. Now, for example, the the Chauvin verdict, um, there were a lot of questions about jurors and whether or not the jury was actually an independent, unbiased uh, finder of fact. Uh, that's the legal term for it. So there are appeals now going on based on that. Um, so was justice served in terms of the process playing out in that trial? Yes. Uh, were there substantive due process issues with how uh, the jury was composed or how the trial went? Well, that's what they're arguing. And they're allowed to make those appeals. That's part of protecting due process. So we have to, as conservatives, not, I think, get so caught up in the political opinion that we sacrifice understanding what procedural and substantive due process actually means in the context of a criminal trial. Um, and this is the same thing, by the way, with the Alec Baldwin issue. Um, I'm no fan of Alec Baldwin personally. I think he's a crazy leftist. Um, you know, I, I think it's terrible what happened with, you know, this young woman that was killed on set. I think it's, you know, everybody's right in terms of the hypocrisy of, you know, Baldwin calling for gun control and then this accident happening. But all of those things are more political opinion, um, other than, of course, everyone should agree that, you know, the death um, and especially, you know, this type of death is is just horrific. But in terms of actually calling for Baldwin's arrest or saying, you know, he deserves a rotten prison or, you know, all of these other things, I'm not going to make those statements because I don't know and haven't uh, – and certainly, you know, as the investigation is still ongoing – we have no idea really yet what actually happened on set. And especially in the 24, 48 hours after uh, it came to the attention of the media of what happened, um, there were people that were already making judgment calls on his guilt or innocence on, you know, totally fictitious sort of, you know, things from misdemeanors all the way up to he probably intended to do this. And, you know, and those types of comments, I think, don't help the politically charged society that we're in. And it's not ever a, a thing that anybody wants to hear of calm down. Um, there's actually a meme that's like, you know, yeah, telling my wife or girlfriend to calm down always totally works. You know, whenever she's mad, I just tell her to calm down. And we laugh at that because, of course, nobody who's upset about anything wants to be told calm down. But I think we would all be very wise in taking a moment and saying, guess what? I don't know all the facts here. And because I don't know all of the facts, I can have political opinions about Baldwin's political actions leading up to this event. Totally, totally fine. But to make a judgment on guilt or not guilt of what happened there when really you have no idea what happened, 
um, that's that's pretty reckless. And that's something that I don't think helps the political conversation. It doesn't help society. And we as conservatives can do better. And we can say, you know, let's let the facts play out and let's hope that Alec Baldwin um, and others recognize why due process is so essential to a well-ordered society and protecting our liberties. Because none of us, and God forbid any of us, find ourselves ever in a situation, uh, whether it's like Baldwin or it's in any uh, criminal law context, we all, if faced with any sort of uh, criminal uh, investigation or charges, uh, whether it's the lowest level misdemeanor all the way up to a felony, we immediately want due process. We want fairness. We want justice. And we need to be able to understand philosophically and morally why that matters to everyone else. So as you're watching the Rittenhouse trial, as you're watching obviously what's unfolding with Baldwin, um, what will unfold in the appellate process of Chauvin. And these are just a few examples of some prominent trials and appeals that are going uh, through today um, in today's culture. And even, you know, what we talked about earlier this week with the oral arguments um, in the Supreme Court on the abortion issue. You know, hopefully the Supreme Court won't take the politically charged opinion of abortion on demand. They will look at what the law actually says, how they apply the Constitution, all of those things, and make it more of a unbiased opinion than what our politically charged society and the court of public opinion demands. Um, so we need to, as conservatives, look at this and be able to separate a court of law versus the court of public opinion. And so much of our media, our focus, our emphasis is all on the court of public opinion. It's on polls like, you know, 47% think X person is guilty or and as if that's supposed to be meaningful. We don't have, you know, we don't have guilt or innocence based on, you know, a mass poll. That That's not at all the purpose of justice that doesn't get us to justice. So let's be reasoned conservatives. Let's participate in a healthy and respectful way when we're talking about these cases and also recognize that, uh, you know, whether or not you like Rittenhouse or not, whether or not you like Alec Baldwin or not, um, and I think those are two very polarizing figures today, both of them similarly and in the exact same way deserve the same due process protection that our Constitution provides to all of us. So that is our show for today, and thank you to everyone, by the way, who um, continues to message me, to uh, to tweet, all of these uh, great questions, and um, a lot of times as I'm scanning uh, comments and questions and different things, that will give me a sense of what um, what you all want to, to talk about and what uh, kinds of things you want to discuss, what questions you have, and so um, continue uh, definitely to get a hold of me. I read um, as many comments and things on you know Facebook, Getter, uh, Twitter, Gab, all of these uh, social media platforms that I can um, to help you uh, not only be the best informed, but also be able to think about these things in a way that goes back to genuine conservatism, uh, which is, of course, uh, rooted in and predicated on the Christian worldview. These are important conversations. We need to continue to have them. So thanks for joining me today and every day on The Jenna Ellis Show. 
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.